have it exclusively on John? Yeah, exclusively on John, yeah. Okay. So the first part, first six classes were on Paul and final six on John. Okay. Thank you. What about grading for orders? Orders, you get a pass plus, pass, or pass minus. So it's basically, as long as you pass the term and final, then you pass. Right, because we're not writing books. There's not a specific grade. In other words, the mark that you would get would definitely be a passing mark or higher, you know, more than passing or below passing. Father, just for clarity, for deacon auditors, we take the final and then have a choice of either the, excuse me, the midterm, and then a choice of either the final exam and a homily, correct? That's correct. One of the other, you need two grades for you. So midterm is one that was on Paul, and then final exam or a paper. If you're doing the paper, excuse me, doing a homily, it would be a funeral homily using a text from Paul as the first reading and a selection from John, second. So it kind of works out. Right. Perfect. Thank you very much. Okay. And in terms of the length of the homily, it should be, you know, maybe about 10 minutes, no more than that. And usually I do, would be about, you know, double space, maybe five or six pages. If you're reading, you know, if you're giving it, okay. So the thing is, again, when you preach, make sure you don't, you know, kind of restrict yourself to a certain amount of time or space if you're writing a homily out. Because people, you know, just lose you after a while. Their minds go off in space. So don't put too many facts. That's what I've been learning. I just was preparing a homily for the weekend because I'll be out tomorrow night up here. And Friday I have to meet somebody in the city and Saturday I have to be up for Saturday evening mass. So I said, I got to work on my homily really early this week. So I did and it was a little bit longer than I usually do. So I went back over and I said, this is nice, but it's not absolutely necessary. So you shorten it up. When you do a homily, how long is your homily? Can I give it? Yes. Eight to nine minutes, maybe. It's no more than that. To say you lose it, people. And very often you try to start with something that you come back to at the end. Right. An example, a story, or whatever it is. So called inclusion, you know. So hopefully when you get to the end, and I always write my own introduction to the Mass, my penitential writing. So, you know, I kind of clue people into the theme of what I'm going to do. So then when I do give it, okay. Also, those of you who are on Zoom, Cynthia gave her the papers to put up on Zoom. She called me last night to say, I can't find them. So I brought an extra copy with me tonight. So she's putting them on Zoom. So you'll probably have to check during the break because I need you to refer to it during the second part of class, okay? Also, she probably won't do it tonight, but in the next two or three days, 
there will be further materials, one on the uh, structure of John, there'll be another one on the Samaritan woman story, there'll be one happened to be by my mentor from my doctorate, uh, Father Giblin, he wrote one on Cana and a couple of other miracles. There's a pattern there. When you read the article, you'll see a pattern there. Then there was one on, uh, oh, I also put something which I usually give. There is a uh, Eucharistic prayer service that you can use for Holy Thursday. So four sides. When you get it printed out, you can, uh, you know, I guess fold it so you have, it's like a booklet kind of thing. Has a litany of the bread of life. It's all on John 6 uh, and uh, the, the readings for Holy Thursday night. I put it together because what I did, we used to have the adoration period after the Holy Night Mass, adoration, etc. You know, it was kind of, you walk in, sometimes they just blow out the candles and get people out of church. So what I did was like the last 15 minutes, we ended at midnight, about a quarter of 12. This thing is also, uh, can be broken up by a number of people. There's a litany, there's a litany, uh, readings, psalm, etc. So different people can do it. So I used to invite people who were there at the very end, please join in the service and people say can I take this home or whatever he said sure uh, but it's like a little four page thing it's all on you know the bread of life which is a, the theme for Holy Thursday so you can use it anytime you have an adoration service etc you want to just uh, pull that up. when I was teaching the seminarians uh, this course I used to say that well you know you can whip this out and impress your pastor you know that, <laughs> wow where did this guy get this from this is nice so it's there to use for your own personal benefit or if when you're in your parish, you know, I always found that was a nice way to end the service. And then, okay, pull out the candles and people would start to leave. Instead of just, you know, saying, time's up, I'm gonna light the door soon, so go out. Okay, and there's also a, uh, a page on the trial scene the Gospel of John, trial before Pilate. There's also a sheet on resurrection appearances in John. So you have all of that, so we'll be looking at that. But the ones that she uh, is going to do for me tonight uh, has the uh, the text of the prologue. I told you I have it indented so you can see what the poem or hymn is and what the, the prose part of it is. And then there's also uh, a sheet on early Christian hymns we'll get into time. Okay, now I know what I was doing last year. I don't know how far I got. We were talking about the story of the raising of the daughter of Jairus and the raising of Lazarus. Jairus stories in Mark and the raising of Lazarus and comparing them. It's a similar kind of story. It's the raising of a person from the dead. And uh, kind of the pattern is the same. Somebody notifies Jesus that person has died or is dying, Jesus uh, eventually goes, by the time he gets there, that person is dead. uh, In the first case of the daughter of Jairus, Jesus is interrupted by the woman with the uh, hemorrhage, uh, and he has to stop and who touched me, 
all that stuff. Then when he gets going, by the time he gets there, Jairus' daughter is dead. With Lazarus' story, Jesus delays. He doesn't go. He waits until Lazarus is already dead before he goes. Now, in both cases, when Jesus gets there, people say, you know, it's a lost cause. It's too late. Can't do anything about it now. But Jesus uh, ignores, you know, what the people say. And uh, he raises both of those individuals from the dead. Now, in the pattern there, uh, he, he only takes his three closest disciples, along with the girl's parents, inside for her raising from the dead. It's done quietly, not publicly. Whereas in the case of Lazarus, Jesus does it in public. In fact, he says a prayer to God saying, uh, you know, well, it's the first of all, the illness is not for and in death, you were saying, I was glad I wasn't there so you may believe. This illness is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Okay, so with the girl, he heals her in private, taking all her parents and three disciples. In John's Gospel, he makes the healing a public spectacle, crowds looking on. Now, in terms of Mark, we can understand why he does it quietly, because it's part of the Messianic secret. But why all the publicity in John? Well, for John, Miracles are meant uh, to convince people of who he is. Right? Whereas in the Synoptic Gospels, especially in Mark, none of the miracles are going to prove who he is. Because they'll come to the wrong conclusion that he's you know, the Messiah that they were waiting for. The uh, political, uh, religious Messiah. So in the Synoptic Gospels, basically Jesus refuses to do miracles to prove his identity. Uh, we see that very bluntly in two places. The scribes and Pharisees ask him to do a sign, perform a sign, but he refuses. He calls them a sinful and adulterous generation because they wanted a sign. He tells them his own preaching, which was superior to that of Jonah and Solomon, okay, should be enough for them. They don't need it to perform a sign. His preaching should be enough to convince them of who he is. Also in the uh, temptation scene, we really don't have it in Mark's gospel, but now All right, Jesus is tempted to jump off from the top of the temple. Why? Because angels of God will swoop down and make sure that nothing happens. And then that will lead the people, this marvelous thing, uh, lead the people to believe in it. And again, in the synoptic gospels, okay, doesn't do miracles to prove who he is. If you were the son of God, throw yourself down from this temple. He knows who he is. Okay? And this is just a public spectacle. It's not going to lead to faith. It's just going to, people, you know, looking at something spectacular. Okay. So, in the, I remember saying this last week, in the synoptics, uh, the things that Jesus does are called miracles. They're spectacular deeds, demonstrations of power. John, though, calls these uh, events signs because they're meant to convince people of Jesus' identity so that they can come to believe in him. 
Gospel in chapter 20, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But through believing, you may have life in his name. So the signs are meant to draw people to faith in God, to help them arrive at the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, along with the miracles, you have the teachings of Jesus. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus hardly ever talks about himself. Various messages about the coming kingdom of God, what people should do to prepare for it. Now, his regular method of instruction in the Synoptic Gospels is the parable. But in John, Jesus doesn't speak in parables. It's not a single parable in John's Gospel. He doesn't uh, proclaim the imminent appearance of the kingdom. His whole focus instead is on identifying himself as the one sent from God. And Brother Christ about that. Jesus, he talks about himself all the time in the Gospel of John. You have those seven I am things. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. All of these images Jesus uses show that he's uniquely important as the way to God to eternal life. And there are other places in John's Gospel where Jesus simply says to himself, I am. His opponents objected to his reference to the father of the Jews, Abraham, in order to show that he himself is greater than Abraham. Jesus replies, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So by calling himself, I am, Jesus was taking the name of God. And it harkens back to the Hebrew scriptures, when Moses is sent by God, Assistant Israelites, he asks God his name. God replies, I am who I am. But she also say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And John stops where Jesus hears, understand he's claiming to be God, because they pick up stones to execute him for blasphemy. <clears throat> Another thing about John's Gospel is the theme that Jesus has come down from the Father and is soon to return to him. You know, the tradition, Jesus came down to return to his Father. His message alone can bring eternal life.
He himself is equal with God. He existed before he came into the world. He reveals God's glory. It's the point of all the signs. Reveals his glory in the signs of his glory is that he is the Son of God. And only those who receive his message come, can partake of the world that is above. Those who receive his message can partake of the world that is above. Only they are in the light. And only they can enter into the truth. Jesus himself is the only way to God. It says there in chapter 14, and the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so in short then, whereas Jesus hardly ever talks about himself in the Synoptic Gospels, that's virtually all he ever does in John's Gospel, talk about himself. There's a close relationship between what he says and what he does. He talks about himself as the light of the world. He heals a man born blind, giving him light. I am the life of the world. So he raises Lazarus from the dead to give him life. So what he proclaims to be, he demonstrates the signs that he works to show that it's true. Uh, did I start the history of John's community last week? Just very quickly, and then we'll go into the prologue. All right, now this is a little bit of historical background for John and the letters of John. The older stories in John's Gospel indicate that the Johannine community originated as a group of Jews who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. John is writing for a Jewish audience. Originally, the community was a group of Jews who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but who also continued to maintain their Jewish identity and worship, and to, and to worship in their Jewish synagogue. Continue to maintain their Jewish identity and to worship in their Jewish synagogue. So they were Jews, but even though they believed in Jesus as Messiah, they continued to practice as Jews. Okay, the evidence of this comes from some of John's stories that emphasize Jesus' Jewishness. They narrate how some Jews came to identify him as the Jewish Messiah. Since this identification of the Messiah, who was the savior of Israel, would have been of no interest to pagans, it makes sense the stories would have been told within Jewish communities. And that's how we figure out the audience is pretty much Jewish because you know, the interest there concerned a Jewish community. This Johannine community 
probably owed his existence to a follower of Jesus, whom they later called the beloved disciple. Now this figure, this beloved disciple, appears several times in the course of the gospel. And he seems to have enjoyed a position of prominence among those who told the stories. Sometimes James just refers to himself as the other disciple to his own community as the one that Jesus loved or the Lord. Now, it appears that these Jewish converts attempted to proselytize other members of the Jewish synagogue. Just the quotation I just read to you a moment ago from chapter 20. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that, believe, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of the signs was missionary. It recorded the miraculous deeds of Jesus in order to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. One of the gospel is to draw others through these stories and recounting miracles to believe in Jesus. Now it becomes clear from several of the stories in John's gospel that a significant disruption eventually took place in which the Jews who believed in Jesus were excluded from the synagogue. In other words, the old traditional Jews kicked them out or bar them from worshiping with them. <coughs> the first century Jews, by a mark, rejected any idea that Jesus could be the Messiah. As long as the Jews who did believe in Jesus kept a low profile, keeping their beliefs to themselves, there was no problem in worshiping in the synagogue. But from its earliest days, Christianity was a missionary religion dedicated to converting others to faith in Jesus. So in the Jonah community, the Christians were undoubtedly rejected by the majority of the Jews and probably mocked and marginalized. And eventually, this group of believers in Jesus was forced to leave the Jewish community. The community of John now is outside of the mainstream Jewish. The story of Jesus healing a man who had been born blind in chapter 9 is evidence that this occurred. In that story in chapter 9, verse 22, John explains why the man's parents refused to cooperate with the Jewish authorities. John says his parents said this. What do they say? We don't know how he got his sight. Ask him. He's old enough. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. We know there was no official policy against accepting Jesus as the Messiah in Jesus' own lifetime. We see in the Acts of the Apostles even after that, 
they were going in and out of the synagogues. And they were believers in Jesus the Messiah. So we know this story then reflects the experience of the Johannine community who were expelled later on from the Jewish community because of their belief in Jesus. Going out believers in Jesus around the time of Jesus and shortly afterwards wasn't happening. It's a later development, we believe, after that council at Jamnia. Now, religious groups that split off from the larger communities often feel persecuted, probably justifiably. And they would build ideological walls around themselves for protection. A kind of fortress mentality develops. It's a small splinter group begins to think that it's been excluded because those of the larger society are willfully ignorant of the truth, or evil, or demonically possessed. Now we know that mentality was true here in our own country. Uh, the reason we built parochial schools because you know we were uncomfortable with what was being taught in public schools. So we built schools to protect ourselves from the ideas that would be circulated in public schools. It's kind of a fortress mentality. So, you know, this splinter group thought of themselves as being excluded because the larger society was ignorant of the truth, that they were evil, demonically possessed. We would arise in a kind of us versus them mentality which only those on the inside are in the know and stand in the light. Those on the inside are the ones that are in the know and stand in the light. On the outside, in the larger community that is excluded them, there's only falsehood and error. To live and be part of that community is to dwell in darkness. So the later traditions that you find in John's Gospel appear to be rooted in this kind of duality of truth versus error, light versus darkness, children of God versus the children of the devil the followers of Jesus versus the Jews. You have this dichotomy, okay? Uh, to walk in the light. Talk about the children of Abraham versus the children of the devil. Follower of Jesus versus the Jews. Okay, so you have this contrast, this duality there. Now, the question is, how can the enemies of Jesus be called the Jews? Even though the members of the Johannine community had originally been drawn from the Jewish community, most Jews in the local synagogue had rejected their message. So the synagogue became the enemy and took on a demonic view in their eyes. Why had they so thoroughly and vigorously rejected the message of Jesus?
From the view of the Joanon Christians, it must have been because they were alienated from the truth and couldn't understand it, even if they heard it. Jesus was a representative of God. The enemies of God couldn't possibly accept his representative. The message of Jesus was so thoroughly divine, so completely focused on things of heaven, that those whose minds were set on things of this world couldn't perceive it. See that come up a couple of times in John's Gospel. Uh, things of heaven, things above, the things below. Of heaven, things of earth. Jesus was from above. Those who recognized only the things of this earth couldn't perceive it. Is that in the dialogue with Nicodemus? Now it appears that the Christological focus the Joanite community shifted radically after its exclusion from the synagogue. So they were thrown out and not allowed to worship with the other Jews. They started to develop deeper Christology. Jesus was still thought of as a rabbi, as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah. All those are kind of Jewish uh, references and understandings, Rabbi, Lamb of God, Messiah. But it was much more than that. These excluded Christians, Jesus was unique in knowing about God. He was the one who brought the truth of God to his people. was unique in knowing about God. He was the one who brought the truth of God to his people. And how did he know this truth? Jesus knew God because he had himself come down from God. He was a man sent from heaven. He came to deliver the message of God to his people before returning to his father. idea of Jesus as the word, the word meaning bringing God's message and returning to the Father. Only those who ultimately belong to God could receive the truth. Only those who were born from above could enter into God's kingdom. Start to deepen their understanding of who Jesus is. Now, these Joanite Christians came to see Jesus as something more than a man representing God or as someone sent to deliver God's message. Just didn't represent God, but delivering God's message. 
came to be understood as the embodiment of the message itself. Jesus was himself God's word. He had existed with God from the beginning and was himself God. God's equal. He existed from eternity. But he became human to communicate God's truth to his own. Those who saw him saw the Father. Those who heard him heard the Father. Those who rejected him rejected the Father. So, in the later stages of the Joanna community, stories came to be told in which Jesus claims, Before Abraham was, I am. That's in chapter 8. In chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Also, some within this Christian community composed a hymn to Christ as the word of God become flesh. It's a prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Some within the Christian community composed a hymn to Christ as the word of God become flesh. And eventually, the author of John's gospel attached this hymn to his narrative. Providing a prologue to the narrative that explained his understanding of Jesus. Understanding came from the stories he had inherited from his tradition. Okay, one final comment on this. The Gospel of John indicates at least three groups against which the community had to define itself. The first group were the followers of John the Baptist. Some of the followers of John the Baptist considered him to be the Messiah. So John's community had to distinguish the fact that Jesus, whom they accepted the Messiah, was in fact the Messiah, not John the Baptist. So we see that in chapter 1, 3, 4, and 10. The second group that they had to define themselves against were the Jews who had taken measures to expel them from the synagogues. These were the people who didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They were those who believed Jesus was the Messiah. It's like against the followers of John the Baptist. He wasn't the Messiah. Jesus was. And the third group, other Christians who had been followers of Jesus, 
but have now separated themselves from the community. They were originally part of the community, but then left the community, apparently over Christological assertions of Jesus' divinity, about bread of life, okay, unless you eat the flesh of the son and drink his blood. What happens? Some leave him and can't you know, take this. And he turns to Peter and says, Will you two leave? Got three groups here. Follows of John the Baptist who thought of John as the Messiah. Then you have those Jews who kicked the Jonah community out of the synagogue. Okay, they didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And finally, uh, the group that uh, you know just couldn't stomach or accept the fact uh, about Jesus's teachings on the bread of life and the Eucharist. Uh, I'm going to give this up. Those of you who some of you can check in the public, see if you got the those three pages. I think they're probably up now. It's going to be hard copies here. Text of the prologue. And there's also one in early Christian hymns. that are already in vogue. So he'd be talking about Mark and Matthew, not John. John will be written later. Now, uh, this is not a literary preface to the work. It's a poetic thing. The question, in its present form, not a question, but in its present form, it is linked with the Gospel of John itself. 
But the question is, what is its point as the opening section of the gospel? You have to decide, should it be read apart from the body of the gospel as a section with its own significance? Or should it be accepted as intrinsically connected with the gospel? So is this something that could stand alone with its own significance and meaning? Or should it be accepted as intrinsically connected with the gospel as something that was, when the gospel was written, this was you know, part of the, the writing of the gospel? Is it to be read as an integral part of the gospel, as the beginning of the actual message? Because the evangelist doesn't want to begin only with the public ministry of Jesus, or even with his birth. But he deliberately takes the existence and the way of the Redeemer back to the beginning before creation, to his eternal being with God. Okay, so, like in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they go back to the beginning of the earthly origins of Jesus, okay? His birth, the Virgin Mary, and then his uh, coming man and being born in Bethlehem. Now, in this prologue, okay, the author deliberately takes the existence and the way of the Redeemer back to the beginning before creation, not just with the incarnation. It brings us back to the creation. Uh, the word of God's being with God from the very start. So we have to figure out was the gospel, excuse me, was the prologue uh, added later as a fitting introduction to a fully thought out gospel, or was it always foreseen as a part of the structure of the gospel? In other words, you know, it could have stand his own, but somehow. At a certain point, it was kind of inserted there as a way to begin this gospel. Or was this the way the evangelist you know, wrote the gospel with this as its beginning? Now, the argument is to support the different views. Those who say the prologue is only loosely linked with the gospel point out that apart from verses 6 to 8 and verse 15, in chapter 1, in that prologue, there is no direct connection with what follows. You don't have, uh, you know, like, the, like Luke has the uh, going to the temple and being lost in the temple. He doesn't have the stories of the uh, temptation. Uh, John doesn't have that. So, you know, it doesn't seem to have any direct connection with what follows. All of a sudden, it goes from the pre-existence of God, the Word of God, to, you know, the uh, preaching of John the Baptist. Second thing is that they say the pre-existence and incarnation of the Logos is hardly reflected or, you know, preached about in the later gospel. We don't have any really much about the pre-existence and the incarnation of the Logos later on. And another thing, too, they point out that the word Logos, meaning word, which is a central figure in the prologue, 
doesn't appear as a Christological title in the rest of the gospel. You never hear about Logos again after you leave the prologue. You know, and the whole prologue is wrapped around the word, the word Logos. All of a sudden it disappears from the rest of the gospel. So those who say this wasn't, you know, intrinsically or integrally part of the gospel in the beginning, say, you know, why would you start with something like this and then just drop it? Why doesn't it appear later on? But also they say uh, two important words in the gospel, charis and pleroma, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, which means covenant love. Pleroma, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, which means fullness. You find that in verses 14 and 16, don't occur again in the gospel. Greek word aletheia, A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A, aletheia, which means fidelity. When that word appears in the rest of the gospel, it means truth. It's a different meaning than it has in the prologue. Also, the uh, Picture of Jesus as a tabernacle. Talk about Jesus pitched his tent. Verse 14. It doesn't occur in the gospel later on, where when they refer to Jesus as anything, he's the temple. Destroy this temple and we'll build it up. So those are some of the reasons that are brought up to explain why they think that maybe uh, this prologue isn't really something that was integrally part of the gospel because there's a lot of disconnects with the rest of the gospel, the body of the gospel. But then you have those who champion the fact that, no, oh, this was, you can perfectly understand it as the beginning of the gospel. They say there are relationships between the prologue and the gospel. Verses 11 and 12. They say it's really a summary of the two main divisions of John. 11, to his own, he came to his own people to receive him. 12, but to many as did receive him, to them he gave authorization to become God's children to those who believe in his name. So you have those who reject, those who receive Jesus. Okay, that's what the whole gospel is later on. So they talk about Jesus came to his own man, minister in Galilee and Jerusalem, yet his own people didn't receive him. But it also says uh, the gospel contains the words of Jesus to those who did receive him. And they said there are also numerous themes shared by the prologue and the rest of the gospel, like the pre existence of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1, and also chapter 17, verse 5. And they also talk about the light of men and the light of the world. Found in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 4 and 9. Also later in the gospel, chapter 8, verse 12, 
chapter 9, verse 5. And the opposition between light and darkness. Chapter 1, verse 5 in the prologue. Chapter 3, verse 19, story of Nicodemus. The idea of seeing God's glory. Chapter 1, verse 14. Later, chapter 12, verse 41. Reference to the only Son of God. The prologue, chapter 1, verse 14 and 18. Later in the Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. The idea that no one except the Son has seen God. It's in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 18. Later in the Gospel, chapter 6, verse 46. So they say those things point out that in its present form, the prologue is not extraneous to the Gospel. It's linked to the Gospel. Now, Brooke Brown and uh, there's another scholar called Diaseo. He says the original poem, underlying the prologue, was a hymn in the Johannine Church. Hymns to Christ are mentioned in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. And then outside sources like Pliny, who writes to the Emperor Trajan around the year 111, he describes Christians of Bithynia, which is in Asia Minor, as saying a hymn to Christ as to a God. So they're singing a hymn to this. Christ as though he were a god. Eusebius, the church historian, cites a testimony that speaks of psalms and hymns which from the beginning were sung to Christ as the word divinizing. Eusebius says that hymns and psalms were sung to Christ as the word divinizing. Since these reference to hymns have some connection with Asia Minor, the conjecture is that the original of the prologue was a hymn of the Johannine Church in Ephesus. We'll come to the, the point of this in a second. But take a look at the other page that you have there. One that has early Christian hymns. I'll just cut and paste them so you can see them there. You 
compare the prologue with these New Testament hymns. One to Philippians, there, 2, 6 to 11. As a sequence similar to that of the prologue, Philippian hymn begins with Jesus Christ being in the form of God. Prologue begins by telling us that the Word was God. And Philippians says that Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, becoming or being born in the likeness of man. Prologue says the Word became flesh. Philippians says that God has exalted Jesus so that every tongue will proclaim that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Prologue ends on the theme of God, the only Son, being ever at the Father's side. Verse 14 speaks of the glory of an only Son coming from the Father. Both instances, the exaltation of glory is witnessed by men. So you see almost the same different words, the same ideas, comparing the prologue there to the letter to the Philippians. And look at Colossians there. One chapter one verse fifteen to twenty. But also so shows similarities to the prologue. In Colossians we hear that the Son is the image of the invisible God. In the prologue, he is the word of God. In Colossians, all things are created in, through, and unto the Son. Prologue, all things are created in, through, not apart from the Word. Colossians, the Son is the beginning. In the prologue, in the beginning, was the Word. In Colossians, all the fullness dwells in the Son, and all things are reconciled through Him. In prologue, we have all had His share fullness of the word become flesh. And a short little excerpt there from First Timothy shows parallels to the prologue. It says he was manifested in the flesh, was taken up in glory. So similar to the prologue, he became flesh and dwelt among us. So his glory, the glory of his only begotten Son. And then in Hebrews, the opening verses of Hebrews form a short Hindu prologue resembling the Gemini prologue. Hebrews 2 to 5, without using the expression the word, says that God spoke to us by his son, who only also created the world. It reflects the glory of God, holding the universe by his word. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So now you see the prologue, in the sense is a hymn, similar to hymns that appear in other New Testament writings. 
So, consisted of a hymn that was composed in the Joanite circuit. We have to figure out, well, what verses belong to this hymn and how is it joined to the gospel? breakdowns is the one that Brown uses. He says the original hymn is broken up into four stanzas. We'll look at the text in a minute. The first stanza is verses one and two. You see that when you look at uh, the page there. One and two. First stanza of a poem or hymn. And the main emphasis was the word with God. The second stanza is verses three to five. And the main thing of there is the word and creation. The third stanza is verse 10. 12b. Emphasize the word in the world. And the last stanza is verses 14 and 16. That's the basic uh, M. Now, basically, if you were to read it like this, it would be, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was toward or communicating with God. The Word was God, divine. It was in the beginning toward God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, not a single thing came to be. That which came to be in Him was life. And that life was the life for human beings. Light shines on the darkness, and the darkness has not overtaken it. He was in the world, the world came into being through him, and the world did not recognize him. His own who came, his own did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, to them he gave authorization to become God's children. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, he saw his glory, glory befitting as an only son from the Father, with grace and truth. From his fullness, all of us have received, namely, grace for grace. There are certain explanations tacked on. For instance, at the end of the third stanza there, verses 12, C to 13. 
To them he gave authorization to become God's children. Now, 12c and 13 really explain how men become God's children. Now, part of the original number is basically saying, okay, he gave authorization to become God's, how do you become God's children? By believing in his name, were begotten not from blood, nor from the will of the flesh, nor from man's desire, but from God. And then verse 17 and 18 will explain love in place of love. So 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. God, no one has ever seen, God, the only Son, being in close converse with the Father, that man is he who personally reported. And then you have material relating to John the Baptist. Verses 6 to 9. There's nothing to do with the word of God. Now we're talking about John the Baptist. It was a human being sent from God. His name was John. This one came for testimony to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. The man was not the light. He came to testify about the light. It was in existence the light, real true light, that enlightens every human being, light meant to come into the world. And then you also have uh, chapter, excuse me, verse 15. John testified about him. Indeed, he proclaimed aloud, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has come to be ahead of me, for he existed before me. So you have those two sections there, 6 to 8 and 9 excuse me, 6 to 8 and 15, all about John the Baptist. Nothing to do with the Word of God. So those are inserted into the hymn at a later time. Okay, now, uh, one commentator on John Rudolf Schnackenberg uh, writes this about you know, the prologue. It says, following the traditional form of the written gospel, the author wanted to give an account of Jesus' work on earth as he saw it in faith. He also wanted to change the ordinary frame of reference and reveal to his hearers from the very beginning the mystery of Jesus' origin, glimpses of which occur often enough in the gospel. We used a primitive Christian hymn which celebrated the pre existence and incarnation of Christ, added his own comments, and forged links between it and the Gospel narrative. What kind of links did he put up the Gospel narrative? Once about John the Baptist, verses 6 to 8 and 15. The testimony of the Baptist is valuable because it confirms the pre existence of the Logos. That's what John the Baptist is talking about in those verses, which have been proclaimed as a hymned confession. The two passages which deal with the testimony of the Baptist are then taken up in verse 19, which is right after the prologue. The narrative then gives the testimony for the Messiahship of Jesus. It repeats word for word the testimony to his pre-existence in verse 30. So the prologue and the first section of the gospel are inseparably linked by this clearly delivered procedure. So verse 18 leads precisely to the point where the gospel can start with its message. 
which is the work of revelation done by the incarnate Logos. A Christological interest made the evangelist put the prologue before the gospel narrative proper. Only the demonstration of the divine origin of the revealer can throw proper light on his unique significance for salvation. As later displayed in the works and words of the earthly Jesus, prologue is a character of a theological opening narrative. So the evangelist used a hymn, a hymn to the Logos, whose theology and outlook was close to his own, he made this poem once an independent entity, the opening of the gospel. So what we're saying here is that, all right, you can try in a sense to reconcile those ideas that, you know, uh, it's not really, he drops the word Logos and there's all sorts of other things, different meanings to words later in the gospel. But on the other hand, there are things that do appear later in the gospel that you find in the prologue. Now, basically it's saying this is a hymn that was developed in the John on community, John's community. Now, the reason why uh, you don't see word, etc. later on is that really wasn't part of the original gospel. It was a hymn used in worship in John's community. But then when he was writing his gospel, this hymn became something uh, important for him because now he could show that Jesus had his beginnings from the very, you know, preceding the origin of the world rather than just in his incarnation. So some of the ideas, so you have the Johannine ideas in this hymn. At the same time, it's a little disjointed because you don't have the word coming up later. Why? Because the rest of the gospel is not a hymn. It's a narrative about Jesus, the Son of God, who existed from the beginning. Uh, and the rest of the gospel gives you the, uh, the, the picture of Jesus as God's word, as God's revelation, as God speaking to humankind. So it's joined later, but it's, it's not really all that alienated from the rest of the gospel. Why? Because it's emerging from a community that's composing this hymn using the theological teachings that John had taught them. So they're going to be thinking in Johannine terms when they compose this hymn. So that's why it's, you know, it's not uh, that abrupt. It, uh, you can see a disconnect in a sense. But on the other hand, ideas and things that appear later in the gospel, they do find themselves in the prologue. Why? Because you know, this is what John had taught his community. So when they developed a hymn to the Logos, okay, the Christological ideas that John had taught, okay, emerge in the, the hymn that they composed. Was this something unique to John's gospel? No, because we see in Paul's letters, we see letters to Hebrews, Timothy, etc. Those communities were developing hymns that they would sing to, to Christ or about Christ in their worship, gleaned from what Paul had taught them. And uh, you see, you know, very similarities to those, between those hymns and the prologue to John's gospel. So most of your scholars will say prologue was not something written along with the rest of the gospel. The rest of the gospel was written, the hymn was being used in the Joanna community. But then when John wanted to publish or make public this gospel, he took this hymn and added it to the beginning of this gospel. 
And how did he want to link this section with the rest of the gospel? He puts two passages about John the Baptist. Because when you finish the prologue, what do you start with? John the Baptist. And he says John the Baptist came to give testimony. What does chapter 19 begin with? What John the Baptist actually said in testimony. So he uses those two passages of John the Baptist to kind of link up with the rest of the gospel. So that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not hanging out there in the field. There's those John the Baptist coming to give testimony to the word. And he gives the testimony, as we'll see, chapter 1, verse 19 and following. Okay. So you see that? So it, it sounds like both arguments. Yes, it wasn't originally the original opening of the gospel. Okay, we can see that because Logos doesn't appear later on at all. But at the same time, there are passages in John's gospel that echo thoughts and themes that you do find in the prologue. Why would that happen? Because you know, you're talking about it's emerging from the same community. The evangelist is uh, incorporating what he's listening to, uh, you know, the preaching of God. And then when he wants to publish the gospel, he takes his hymn, say, okay, I want to let you know that Jesus pre-existed his earthly existence. He was there with God from all time. Before. All right? All right, we'll just start. Maybe the first two stanzas, I'll give you a break. In the first stanza, which is verses one and two, they, the theme concentrates on the word with God. Okay, the word is more than the utterance of God at the dawn of creation. Is the personal word which became flesh at a given time of history. Jesus Christ's existence is traced back to before the world, way back to divine eternity. Chapter 5, verse 24, chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus characterizes his message as a word. The prologue shows that the messenger himself was the word. very title word implies a revelation, a divine communication. So the prologue is orientated from the start to the incarnate Logos. So in praising the word made flesh states that he already existed without a body of flesh in the beginning before the existence of creation. We'll talk about body of flesh yet. So the words in the beginning, although they refer to pre-creation, 
imply there is going to be a creation, a beginning. So if the poem were going to concentrate just on God himself, it would be no beginning. God is in God, there is no beginning, no end. Okay? Well, the prologue says that the word was. It doesn't speculate how the word was, because what is important is what the word does, not his origins. Now, this is something that you, when you read the translation of the scriptures in English, you miss. And also the way we translate it. The New Testament doesn't refer to Jesus as God very often. Most passages, like the prologue, Romans, Hebrews, Second Peter, are in hymns or doxologies. So in any case, the title God was more quickly applied to Jesus in liturgical formula than in narratives or letters. And the New Testament heritage from Judaism made this reluctance to designate Jesus understandable. Because for the Jews, what did God mean? They talked about God. Who do they refer to? Yahweh. When a Jew prays to God, who is he praying to? When God, God Abba, the Father, Abba, right? But for the Jews, God meant the Heavenly Father. And so it couldn't be readily applied to Jesus until a wider understanding of this term was reached. In fact, Jesus refers to be called good because only God is good. And then after the resurrection in chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus calls the Father, my God. I'm going to my God, your God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. Jesus is spoken of as one Lord, but the Father is one God. The New Testament dealt with the divinity of Jesus, not through the title God, calling Jesus God, but by describing his activities in the same way as to describe the Father's activities. In John chapter 5, verses 17 and 21, and also chapter 10, 28, verse 20 and 29. It talks about, you know, he and the Father, you know, he does what the Father wants him to do. In chapter 1, verse 1, in the drawing on him, borders on using God for the Son, but omits the article that avoids, by omitting the article that avoids any suggestion to personal identification of the word with the Father. Now, read the testament. I try to write it on the board, but I can't. NRK, in the beginning, Ain Ha Logos, was the word. 
NRK in the beginning, Ain Ha Logos was the word. Kai Ha Logos and the word Ain cross times the on was toward God, with God, in relation to God. Okay? Kai Thaos ain ha logos. And Thaos ain ha logos. Now, we, Thaos means God. You would say, okay, and God was the Word. There's one thing missing. Before ha logos, the Word, tan tha'an, that's the accuser, the God. Then you have Theos along with Ha Logos. What's missing before Theos? The article should be Ha Theos. Because you have Ha Logos, Ha Logos, Tantha'an, Kai Theos, Ain Ha Logos. Now, when you use the word is or was, what's that equivalent to using mathematically? Equal sign. So it was, it was a kaithaos and God, ain't hologos, was the word, or the word was God. It doesn't say that. So it's the word was theos, not hothaos. So the word was, in a sense, divine. It doesn't say the word was God because for a Jew, God is, is the, the word the Father? So before you got your Christology, this is what they had to work on. They avoided, the author avoided equating Logos equaling God. Because it's not true, really, in our Christian Christology, the word wasn't the Father, because that was what Thaos meant. The word was divine, in the proper translation. I think I have it here. The word was says God, yeah, but it really means divine. So by uh, omitting the article, it avoids identifying the word with the Father. The word is separate from the Father. And unfortunately, when you go to translate it, it's lost. It's lost, because they said the word was God. But that's not what he's saying. That may be how the author may have understood it, but he can't yet, it's too early close to Judaism, you know, to to say to them, Jesus was God the Father, it can't be. And we don't believe Jesus is God the Father either. But that, that's what that word thaos means. God means God the Father. Okay, so again, you know, something that you can't pick up when you read it or when you read the passage in our translations for uh, the Mass. Okay, verse 1, in the beginning, what does that remind you of? Genesis. Genesis, right, okay. And so what follows is going to be continuing the themes of creation. What are the themes of creation? What are the images? Light. Darkness. I said let there be light, okay, darkness. And he created life, okay, light and life. So here now refers to the period before creation. The designation of the sphere of God. 
Now, beginning was the word, and the word pain crossed the on was. There's a different number of ways you can translate this. It could mean in God's presence. That's the way it's mostly translated. That can mean with God, accompanying God, taking along with God, or toward God, in relationship to God. Okay, so uh, I think that that translation, the son was in relationship to God, yes. He was God's son. So there's a nuance of relation, emphasizing the relation between the Word and God the Father. And what does that do? Relationship makes sure that you are not the same, right? You're in relation to somebody else. Okay, there's a closeness, uh, affinity to that person, but they're not one and the same. So that, again, uh, you know, in the very beginning, the beginning was the Word, yeah. But now you get, and the Word was toward God, communion with God, in relationship with God, which separates the word of God. Now the word was divine. The same word was God. Okay. Uh, you also have a, a reference to the figure of wisdom in the Old Testament, Sophia. Wisdom is pictured as God's companion and partner in the creation of all things. But here's a little different. The Logos is really there before creation. It's in a personal relationship with God, living in God, and from God. So Sophia, wisdom, the Old Testament talks about she being present when God was creating the world. But here the word was with God before the creation of the world. Okay, get to the second stanza, and after this, I'll give you a break. Verses three to five deals now with the word and creation. So, all things came into being through him. So now we're in the sphere of creation. All that is created is intimately related to the word, or is created not only through him, but also in him. Let me go back to the passage from Colossians there. For in him was created all things, by him and in him. So the same unity that exists between the word and his creation we applied in John chapter 15 to Jesus and the Christian. So uh, creation cannot exist without the word. The word brings creation into existence. Jesus later on says in chapter 15, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, the world could not come into existence. We say, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. The world is dependent on the Creator. We're dependent on Jesus. The fact that the Word creates means that creation is an act of revelation. All creation bears the stamp of God's word. And remember this, remember in Romans, what was the argument? Jew and Gentile are the same, why? The same footing, why? Sinners. How are the pagan sinners? 
Jews are sinners because they won't believe in Jesus as a sinner, as a Messiah. The pagans fail. Why? Because idols, false idols. No. Heavens, God's handiwork is in the heavens. They fail to see the work of God in creation. Remember that? But they didn't have the scriptures, but they had God's work. That's the same kind of thing here. Creation bears the stamp of God's word. Romans insist that from his creatures, God is recognizable by men. The word's role in creation means that Jesus has a claim on everyone. But verse 10 of the prologue tells us the world rejected that claim of Jesus. Also, too, you have uh, interesting here. The saying that it's through the word that all things came into being. The prologue distances itself from Gnostic thought. What was involved in Gnostic thought? They said that a demiurge and not God was responsible for material creation. Material creation is evil. So God couldn't be great evil. So you have this demiurge, a semi-god, responsible for material creation. But here in the prologue, it says, since the word is related to the father, and the father creates, and the word creates, rather, the father may be said to create through the word. So the material word has been created by God and is good. This idea of the world is, is bad. And somebody other than God created it. This would be your Gnostics. Prologue, you know, wipes that out. Okay. Um, it says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, not a single thing came to be. That which came to be in him was life. And that life was the light for human beings. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overtaken it. No. But the Logos should have been for men according to the plan of creation. He became, in fact, for believers in his historical mission. Jesus is the light of the world. Insofar as he makes it possible to possess the light of life. So the activity of the Logos as light begins with creation. And it extends by means of the incarnation when the light came into the world, all the way to the eschatological fulfillment. <laughs> light of life, eternal life. In verse 5 it says, uh, light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overtaken it. That's a reference to the sin in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, uh, The opposition between light and darkness is part of John's dualistic thought. Now, darkness there. The darkness has not overtaken it. Now, in John's gospel, darkness has a, a unique meaning. It refers primarily 
to the world estranged from God. It's the place of man's existence that is not yet or no longer illuminated by divine light. So darkness is a world estranged from God, not illuminated by divine light. To walk in darkness means to walk without God. In other words, darkness came to mean men themselves as they yield to this darkness, oppressed and blinded by it. So, for instance, uh, the story of the man born blind. You, know, you claim to see, but you're in darkness. Okay? You're blind, you're in darkness. So it came to not refer to the world, but to individuals <laughs> walking without the light of Christ. So there was an attempt by darkness to overcome the light that was the fall of man. Okay? But the light shines on. Although man sinned, a ray of hope was given to him. When God says, put energy between serpent and the woman, the servant was not destined to overcome her offspring. Also, the word life. That which came to be in him was life. And that life was life for human beings. Now, life in John's gospel always means eternal life. The word for life, zoe, never means natural life in John or in his letters. So the identification of this life with the light of men the next line indicates eternal life is meant here. Life is the gospel, and excuse me, in the first letter of John is specified as eternal life. So I am the bread of life. Life there is eternal life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Totally. Always means eternal life. Okay? It's not just your ordinary human existence. Okay. I'll give you a break, then we'll come back with the insertion there about John the Baptist as a witness to the light. Kind of uh, plodding along, but there's, there's a richness in some of these passages and images that John uses, especially in the prologue. So, darkness is the world without God. He talks about someone walking in darkness, means you're walking without light. That's why later on, John's Gospel, uh, he's the only one that talks about uh, Judas and his buddies coming out at night. Not only at night, but also, what do they bring with them? Torches. Torches. <laughs> Artificial light. Because they're walking in darkness, they're walking without the light that Christ should be able to give them. So not only they come in darkness, they're also using artificial light. Not the true light. Is that why when he died, the set of darkness fell over the land? Well, that's part of the apocalyptic thing is that one of the signs is that the light goes out. In other words, it's a That's why we don't have Paschal, no candles lit, no Paschal candle until Easter Vigil. Yeah. Okay, give you a break until about a quarter to. Okay. Anybody on my Zoom group have any questions?
say verses 6 to 6 and 7 were the original opening of the gospel the first verse of 6 it was sent by God a man named John would be no normal opening for an historical narrative in the Old Testament in the book of Judges it opens the Samson narrative with, and there was a man of Zorah of the Danites. Judges, uh, 19.1 and 1 Samuel 1.1. So if at least the substance of verse 6 and 7 came before verse 19, there would have been a good sequence. Verse 7 says that John the Baptist came as a witness to testify and then verse 19 and following presents his testimony and the circumstances under which he was given. So in other words, they're thinking that when he wrote this gospel, okay, this was the beginning of it. But then he adds the prologue to the beginning, but drags those two verses back into the pro into the end of the prologue to kind of, you know, give it some kind of a, uh, you know, link with the body of the gospel itself. So this strange expression, to testify to the light, makes more sense. So you have in verse 19 there. We don't have 19. Excuse me? We don't have 19. Because of the no, no, I'm just going here. Oh. So you have, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. 19 says, and this is a testimony of John. Just flows right into it. So he came to give testimony, verse 19, and this is a testimony of John. 
And the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Right? You see how that you know, came to give testimony to light. And this is the testimony of John. It's verse 19. So you can see how they're trying to figure out, okay, he dragged a little bit of his opening back into the prologue so that, uh, you know, the prologue would seem to be, you know, naturally connected with the body of the gospel. So ordinary, the light can be seen. There's no need for someone to testify to it. But in verse 19 and following, there's a question, question of testifying before those who are hostile and who have not yet seen Jesus. Now, verse 8 there, the man, that man was not the light. He came to testify about the light. Who's that referring to? That man was not. So here you have refutation of the exaggerated claims made by followers of John the Baptist. How does he do that? By subordinating John the Baptist to Jesus. They may have claimed the title of light of John the Baptist. That man was not the light, but came to testify about the light. Was he going to give testimony? What was the light? The light was Jesus. The picture of light coming into the world to enlighten men is a messianic one taken from the Old Testament, particularly from Isaiah. Isaiah describes the Prince of Peace in this way. He says, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Light has shone on those who dwell deep in the land of darkness. So the prologue associates the witness of John the Baptist, the Isaiah voice in the wilderness, with the prophetic proclamation of the coming of the light. Darkness because it was God wasn't there. Yeah, God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. <clears throat> the coming of the man who is to point out the Messiah to Israel and to bear witness to the incarnate Logos, the Redeemer of the world, that's the work of God. So, for instance, in verse 6 there, it was even being sent from God. So the sending of John the Baptist to bear witness is part of God's plan, part of God's work. John speaks of the one who sent me to baptize. Who is the one who sent me to baptize? All right. He says, I am sent before him. John the Baptist, I am sent before him. So the sending is, again, not to put down John the Baptist, but to say John the Baptist's role was part of God's plan. Just as the word was sent into the world, John the Baptist was sent into the world with a mission. Okay, so the evangelist didn't want to belittle a Baptist. He claims the great baptizer and preacher of penance as a witness for Jesus, the light of the world. Verse 7 there, this one came for testimony to be a witness about the light so that all might believe through him. Ultimately, Jesus' John the Baptist's message would touch all men, just as Jesus' message 
spoken in Israel would touch all men. It doesn't say, uh, it says that all my beliefs are, it didn't say all Jews, but the message is to be universal in scope, just as the message of Jesus the Messiah would touch all men. So the fourth gospel stresses more the role of John the Baptist as a witness rather than as a baptizer. We'll see this when we get it later in chapter one. Okay, why is that so? Why does John stress the role of John the Baptist as a witness? He doesn't go in, you don't have John baptizing Jesus in his gospel. The role of John the Baptist is to be a witness to Jesus. Why? The theological reason is that all faith is seen as response to testimony. John's testimony is for all time and for the whole world. If you remember later on in the gospel, the story of Thomas, his faith, he was asked to believe on what basis? On the testimony of his fellow apostles that they had seen Jesus. He says, no, I won't believe this until I myself see. So faith is based on testimony. An eyewitness is someone, when you believe in somebody, you're accepting their testimony. So this is the important role of John the Baptist, to bring others to faith through his testimony. And the evangelist is writing these things so that through his testimony, writing the gospel, Others may come to believe in Jesus. Okay, in verse 8 there he says, that man was not the light. In chapter 5, verse 35, Jesus calls John the Baptist a lamp. But Jesus himself is the light. The light of the world, way of the truth, Okay. So, in terms of being tested, giving testimony to all men, it was before official Judaism, before all of Israel, the nation of Israel, before his own disciples. His testimony says, that's the Lamb of God. John points his disciples to Jesus. So, unlike the synoptics, John the Baptist's role is precursor in the way, it's not emphasized. <laughs> Although he does proclaim him who comes after me. Okay, so John is not the light, the real light was coming into the world. And then we get back to the third stanza, verses 10 to 12. This stanza deals with the word incarnate in the ministry of Jesus word in the world. In verse 10 it says, <coughs> excuse me, called my throat. talking too much. (laughs) 
Right. And verse 10 there, he was in the world, the world came into being through him, and the world did not recognize him. The world now, it's that part of creation that is capable of response, it's the world of men. Light has come into the world, but men have preferred darkness to light. The world did not recognize him. Rejection of the word by men is quite similar to the rejection of wisdom by men in the Old Testament. There, the book of Enoch says, wisdom came to make her dwelling place among the children of men and found no dwelling place. Now, in the Old Testament, the basic sin on the part of any Jew is what? What's the basic failure of any Jew? Not to obey Yahweh, okay, and his commandments. For John, what is the basic sin? Not believing. Not to know and believe in Jesus, right? So the ultimate failure for a Jew is to fail to obey God and his commandments. For John, the basic failure of a believer or a Christian is to know and believe in Jesus. So that's why I said the world did not recognize. Verse 11. To his own, he came. To his own people did not receive him. And that refers to the people of Israel. His own people, people of Israel. Back in the Old Testament, God says, you should be my own possession. And all the peoples. Lay down. So do not receive him, and then it follows. But as to many as did receive him, to them he gave authorization to become God's children to those who believe in the same. Now the fact that the Logos encountered misunderstanding and rejection from men when he came into the world is also contrasted with the truth that there were still some who received him. So it says, his own did not receive him, but as to many as did receive him, gave authorization to become God's children. Okay, so the, the evangelist here looks back on the public ministry of Jesus uh, later on in chapter 12 and says, first, that Jesus' hearers did not believe in him despite the great signs he worked. And he uses scripture to explain the mysterious hardening of their hearts. But then he adds, nonetheless, even among the rulers, there were many who believed in him. So even though most of the people he came to save rejected him and did not believe in him, always adds in the prologue and later in the gospel, there were some who did believe. Now, as many as did receive him, to them he gave authorization to become God's children to those who believe in his name. 
And here you have differences with the Gnostics. John is the father who leads believers to Jesus and entrusts them to Jesus. It's the personal decision of faith which brings about union with Jesus. There's no basic exclusion of non-Gnostics, those who are not pneumatics by nature, in other words, people that live by the Spirit. To those who believed in faith, the Logos gave power to become children of God. And from the Gnostics, how were you saved? No Greek, the word Gnostic means what? Knowledge, gnosis, okay? All right, so you were saved by special knowledge. That's the Gnostics. Here, talk about the Father leads people to Jesus, trusts them, and in faith, that brings about a union between a person and Jesus. So those who receive Jesus in faith, the Logos gave power to become children of God. They're not yet his children, do not become so by knowledge that is first received from the Logos the capacity to be children of God. And the sonship with God comes about through baptism. That's what the whole story with Nicodemus. Now also too, organization to become God's true. There's a technical word there, techna, T-E-K. Hey. Now the word we us, be like H-U-I-O-S, we us, means son. Is used in John only for Jesus. John maintains a distinction in vocabulary between Jesus as God's son. Christians as God's children. Now, if you remember the Beatitudes, one of them was about the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. Sons of God. They use the word. But John will not use that word son except for Jesus. Oh, okay. Okay? But the synoptics, and called children of God or sons of God, the word is weos, weon. But uh, also in Galatians, he uses that term, sons of God. But in John, the word son is reserved exclusively to refer to Jesus. shown to those who believe in his name. Faith is the basic prerequisite for salvation. I'm a child of God by believing in his name. Now, believing in his name is a typically Johannine expression. Belief in the name of Jesus is really not different from belief in Jesus. It kind of means the same thing. Although it expresses clearly that to believe in Jesus must believe that he bears the divine name given to him by God. 
So basically, uh, those who believe, those begotten by God, really saying one and the same thing. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is begotten by God. It's the first letter of John. So to be begotten by God, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is one and the same thing. Those who accept Jesus are those who were granted to Jesus by the Father. Nobody can come to the Father except through me, okay? They're not the ones begotten from below, but the ones begotten from above. Why? Because the Father gives them to Jesus. I trusted him. He said, Let's upright. You haven't lost any that you've entrusted to me. So uh, a person who is uh, Brought to Jesus by the Father is someone who is begotten from above, not from below. He's begotten from the Father. And the expression, there again, it talks about God not from blood, the little human flesh, but from a man's wish. In other words, it's not any uh, earthly, sexual, or carnal way that a person is born of God. It comes through some kind of a spiritual birth. Okay, so he's contrast making sure God not from above, which is, he goes to Nicodemus' story, telling him how that happens. Okay, now we get to the last stanza, verses 14 and 16. Love about the community sure and the word become flesh. This final standard introduces the community and states what the career of the word means in the community's life. And this last stanza forms an inclusion with the first stanza. You know what inclusion is, right? It's, you know, it's, it's bookending. It's, we start with something and you end with it. It's a parallel. How is that so? Well, verse one says, the word was, verse 14 says, the word became. Verse one says, the word talks about the word in God's presence. 14 talks about the word among us. Verse one talks about the word was God. 14 talks about the word became flesh. So the first stanza there, the eternal being of the word, in the first stanza is contrasted with the temporal becoming of the word here in the world. Okay, so the word with God, the word was, the word was in God's presence, the word was God. 14 talks about the word became, okay, in the flesh, the word among us, the word became flesh. Now, verse 14 there describes the incarnation in very realistic language by stressing that the word became flesh. The word flesh was associated with the incarnation from the earliest days of Christian theological expression. For instance, a letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 3, 
describes God's Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. Romans 8, verse 3, speaks of God's sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, contrasts manifestation in the flesh with vindication in the spirit. And finally, Philippians, chapter 2, verse 7, famous hymn there, who emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming in the likeness of man. Parallelism between 14a and 14b, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It indicates that the scandal of the incarnation consists in the presence of God among men, not in his becoming flesh. Scandal is not in the how, but the fact. Not that uh, the word took on human nature but the fact that God decided to live among us. And here again, so theology is opposed to Gnostic and ascetic thought. The idea that the ultimate meeting with the Logos of God would be when the Logos became flesh would have been unthinkable. Instead of providing the escape from the material world, which the Greek intellect desired, that escape from the world is so that escape from the world, the word of God was now inextricably bound to human history. God enters our world rather than trying to escape it. Okay, so the anti-Gnostic tone is really unmistakable. Their false doctrines were redeemer right only in an apparent body. Deny the identity of the man Jesus with the divine logos. They believe that redemption by a man of flesh and blood was superfluous. Verse 14 there, the word became flesh. The title of the word was appropriate in verse 1 because the divine being was destined to speak to men. And the title occurs in verse 14. The divine being has taken on human form. Found the most effective way in which to express himself to men was becoming flesh. So the basic way for God to get his message through to us was to become one of us. And, and that's true of life, isn't it? It's only when you understand somebody become one with them that you're able to speak to them and they're able to, you know, grasp the, that connection there. In becoming flesh, the word doesn't stop being the word, 
that exercises his function as the word to the fullest. The word flesh socks, S-A-R-X, stands for the whole man. It says the word became man, not a man. And then, and dwelt among us. Literally the word in Greek, eskenai, means to pitch his tent. So what it means here is that the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And that image is a beautiful one. Why? Because we talk about people pitching the tent means settling down someplace. Okay, it's not you're running off, you're kind of wanting to take some kind of roots. This expression is found here and in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 3. That's the only two times. He became flesh, but he has not ceased to be God. So the idea of tenting is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 25. There Israel is told to make a tent so that God can dwell among his people. Tabernacle became the site of God's localized presence on earth. Where could you find God in Jewish history? In the temple. Oh, is that why at the transfiguration, Peter says, shall we make a tent? Yep. In the book of Joel, you'll know that I am the Lord your God, who makes his dwelling in Zion. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, I will make my dwelling in your midst. In Ezekiel, God will make his dwelling in the midst of his people forever. So, where was the presence of God localized for the Jews in the temple? Okay, the flesh of Jesus Christ is now the new localization or place of God's presence on earth. Where can you find God? The person of Jesus. Jesus is the replacement of the ancient tabernacle or tent. We've seen his glory. The Greek word is kavod. Some as doxa in Hebrew is kavod. And what does that mean? It implies a visible, powerful manifestation of God to men. Glory, God's glory. It's a visible and powerful manifestation of God to men. So there's a constant connection of the glory of God, his powerful manifestation, with his presence in the tabernacle and the temple. Where would you find God's glory? In his temple. Ezekiel, Exodus rather says, when the tabernacle uh, was erected, the cloud covered it, and the glory of God filled it. First Kings chapter 8 reports the same phenomenon when Solomon's temple was dedicated. Ezekiel chapter 11 says that the glory of God left the city just before the Babylonians destroyed the temple. But in the vision of the restored temple, Ezekiel saw the glory of God once again filling the building. And so it's very appropriate that after describing the word setting up a tabernacle among men in the flesh of Jesus, 
prologue should mention that his glory became visible. So if God's glory is visible in the temple, Jesus now is replacing the temple where his God's glory should be seen. Jesus. That's right. So that's why when he works these miracles, perform first and reveal his glory, saying that God is present in me. I am the Son of God. And also it says, and we saw his glory. What does the we refer to? Here it refers not just to uh, does it refer excuse me, does it refer just to a particular group? Like Peter, James, and John witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus. We know that's not true in John. Why? Because he doesn't have that story. Instead, the we has to mean all of the disciples, okay? Anyone who witnessed one of the signs who saw Jesus' glory. Since the transfiguration scene is described in the synoptics in terms reminiscent of God's appearance to Moses on Sinai, in the building of tents and tabernacles is specifically mentioned. That, uh, this verse here might be an echo of that uh, transfiguration scene, but not definitely mentioned. Uh, now, in verse 15, you come back to John the Baptist again. We left John the Baptist with verses 69, and we come back here to 14. 15 rather. John testified about him, indeed proclaimed aloud, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has come to be ahead of me, for he existed before me. Now, again, remember last time, you can't test, give testimony to light, etc. And then, this is the testimony of John. Here he talks about the pre existence of Jesus. Okay, he who comes after me has come to be ahead of me, for he existed before me. In verse uh, 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Talking about the pre-existence of Jesus. So, verse 14 here. Say that the pre-existent heavenly word became flesh. Okay. And now, uh, verse 15 confirms what verse 14 has said. John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus is the pre-existent. The word became flesh. The last time you heard about the word was with God at the very beginning. Now he becomes flesh. John the Baptist is testifying now. He who comes after me has come to be ahead of me, for he existed before me. So, again, another polemic suggesting John the Baptist might be greater than Jesus because his ministry began first. See, no. Seeing that it, meant, it might be useful here to emphasize the theme of pre existence, he copied into the prologue the sentence from verse 30. So, Again, you always talk about when twins are born, who is the most important? First firstborn. That's what we talk about, the firstborn, okay? So that's the person who has prestige and honor, etc. the firstborn son. So John the Baptist, uh, excuse me, the writer John the Evangelist is saying about John the Baptist, he's saying to people, you might think that I am 
the most important one because I came before Jesus. Because that's not true. Who comes after me has come to be ahead of me. He existed before me. That's why he says he must increase and I must decrease. He's going to say later on, right? So it's a polemic against the followers of John the Baptist who would use that argument saying, you know, whoever is first is the most honorable and to be reverence, okay? Now, uh, in verse 30, it's interesting to say here, he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I said, where did he say it? In the prologue, okay? That's the only, that's the connection with the prologue there. You had mentioned it in the prologue. So actually, uh, what John is doing, the evangelist is doing, is reiterating what the prologue is saying here. I said, well, when did he say that? The only time is when uh, the Baptist says it here. Okay, so the fourth evangelist claims John as a witness sent by God to give testimony to Jesus. And like the synoptics, he draws them into the scope of Christianity. Now, toward the end of this passage now, prologue. The glory of the word here keeps breaking through the flesh and the miracles which can be seen. So in other words, every time Jesus, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So the glory of God is now not only in the person of Jesus, but it will be seen through the works that Jesus performs signs that he performs. So the miraculous signs in John is an essential part of the presentation of the incarnate word. That's how the word reveals who he is. All right, just wrapping up, uh, enduring love. For uh, this fullness, all of us receive, namely, grace for grace. Grace corresponding to grace, etc. Okay, the word here is a pairing of two Hebrew words, hesed, H-E-S-E-D, and emet, E-N-E-T. Hesed is God's kindness and mercy that's shown in choosing Israel without any merit on Israel's part. That's God's hesed, his kindness or mercy in choosing Israel without any merit on their part, and expressing that mercy and love in the covenant. We often talk about God's covenant love. God, in inner and issues, parts chose Israel to be a special people. Now God's enet is his fidelity to the covenant promises. The faithful are, faith, people are constantly unfaithful to their commitment to the covenant. But God is always faithful, constantly. Okay, so the theme of enduring covenant love that appears here in verse 14, taken up in 16, this in well with the tabernacle and glory references. 
The great exhibition of the enduring covenant love of God occurs at Sinai, the same setting where the tabernacle became the dwelling for God's glory. So now the supreme exhibition of God's love is the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, the new tabernacle of divine glory. So this hymn, this prologue concludes with a proclamation of a new covenant replacing the Sinai covenant. So it says here in 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. So in other words, the law is being replaced now through the grace and truth that's coming through Jesus Christ. shows you the previous legal system the law was given through Moses has now been surpassed by the reality of the grace of Jesus Christ you notice it says here the law was given by Moses or through Moses while grace and truth came through Jesus Christ behind both though is the will of God it was God who gave the law through Moses this guy who's giving his covenant in love through Jesus Christ. So not only is the New Testament revelation superior to the old, it's unique because it was brought by the only Son of God who had direct knowledge of his Father. He alone who comes down from heaven and speak of heavenly things from his own experience. And the final thing I mentioned there is the uh, no one has ever seen God. Uh, the only Son, being in close converse with the Father, is the one person, is he who personally reported. So, the Avengers is affirming that after the revelation of the Son, there's only one means of access to the Father, which is Jesus, Jesus right? So it says, no one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, being in close converse with God, he is the one who has seen God. It comes down from heaven to tell us about that. Okay. Uh, right now, next week, I'm going to do the, uh, the testimony of John the Baptist, the call of the disciples, uh, also the uh, Cana miracle, and uh, Sonic. Sonic. Who John? I'm trying to think now. And Nicodemus will try to get the Nicodemus. Read, look up publicly. There's an article there by uh, my mentor, Father uh, Giblin. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's not the easiest of reading, but I've underlined certain things in that you'll see. Uh, but it, it shows a similarity between a number of incidents in the gospel, beginning with Canaan. It does it several times. It follows the same procedure. Why? And it'll explain a little bit, maybe, you know, back and forth between Jesus and Mary in the uh, miracle of Cana. So make sure you read that particular article. Uh, I think it's called. You know, I have it back. 
suggestion, negative response, positive action. St. John's portrayal of Jesus. Jesus, uh, the Canaan miracle, chapter 4, which is the uh, chapter 7 and chapter 11. Four passages where he says there's a definite pattern there. When you see it, it explains a lot about the gospel, okay? So make sure you read that for next week. So, uh, oh, no, I don't have any. The week after this, right? You're off next week. Good. Okay, enjoy your week. Okay. Uh, those of you doing your papers, this will be coming out. back to your information that I gave you the extension. Okay. Go over the safe trip, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's like you know, you know, it. You don't have to go to the rain. You don't have to go to the rain. You don't have to go I can only be alone. Sometimes, if one person, if everybody in the class, like the switching in the class, nobody took that one particular question, I'd say, why? So you can say anything. Mm. So, in place, I have yeah, one with Claude O'Neill. I can buy the question one or the only definitions. Wait a sec, we had two trials. Some, some of them, he didn't hit me. A couple of your It was kind of vague. Five days. And I got it right anyway. Why didn't you do it? It was kind of sense. So that's what shows me. Okay. Every question was covered. And people felt comfortable. Yeah, no, they were covered. So I, I always say I make up a test. Where am I the And it's a test on me. Right. Yes, you said All the years. No, I said he had great pants. How many of you? Oh, I want to read the record. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> started teaching in 
undergraduates at Fordham, 98 to 206, taught in the graduate school, and again, 27 until they are teaching here. So, I don't know what else, what other challenges do I have? I taught seventh grade in elementary school. You could write a book. I taught A3 CCD. I, I, years, I, I taught A3, I, yeah, I taught confirmation for four years, and that's rough, because oh, they don't know anything. They know nothing, because most of the catechists, most of the catechists are parents that teach because the kids are in the program. That way they don't, they don't have to pay. That's not the reason to teach. No. And you ask the first day class, the compliments, is Jesus God? Half them say yes, half, half say no. So the ones that say yes, then why was he baptized? Oh, I know, I know. Why was he baptized? Oh, to get rid of the sins. I'm like, oh boy. So all you can do is do, do your best. So, and uh, Anthony Reynolds gets still on this thing, so. No reason raining out. I think this is it, yeah. Well, I look at the extended forecast. I'm getting snow next week. It's like he doesn't want to get in it. The one that's next Wednesday, and the show Tuesday is going to be only high of like 30 and you know, low, lows in the 20s. I can't get rid of winter. Yeah. It's been crazy to get rid of it. And then it's happening to just be like in the 80s, which I don't know. 